The reading this morning is from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. The priests and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while I was speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we, we must warn them, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? 
you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together and prayed to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand what should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The word of the Lord. Uh, well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to church. Uh, my name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, we get to continue in Acts today. I'm really enjoying studying the book of Acts. Uh, boy, it's it's just, it's so exciting, <laughs> I've got to say. Can you put yourself in this position of uh, this early church, seeing what God is doing? There's so much for us to learn here, I think. Uh, it's been a real joy to spend some time in this passage this week. So I'm going to pray for God's help for us, and then uh, we'll have a think about Acts 4 together. Let's pray. Almighty God, we, we really thank you. Um, as we've read about, even just now, that you are the God who is in sovereign control of all things. And so you're the one who's ordained that we're here tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you've placed us here at this very moment with your word so that we might hear you and trust you. Please be at work uh, in this time by your spirit to help us to believe the things that we hear. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want you to just imagine for a second that... In five minutes' time, uh, you hear some sirens and then some flashing blue and red lights arrive at the front of the church and in walk a couple of police officers and they march on up the stage and put me in handcuffs and walk me out of the church. 
What would you be thinking at that moment? Some of you, you'd probably be thinking, I knew it. I get, I, it doesn't surprise me at all, right? Makes a lot of sense. That'd be after him. Some of you might be thinking that. Now, uh, let's like, extend that scenario a little bit. Let's imagine that it wasn't just me that the police came and arrested, that it was all of the pastors and all of the elders and all of the ministry team leaders, all of the staff here at WBC, anybody who serves in any kind of you know, capacity, takes on any kind of leadership, that the police came, locked us up, put us in a paddy wagon, and when we asked them why, they said, it's because you won't stop talking about Jesus. What would you be thinking as that hypothetical scenario kind of played out? Uh, I reckon you'd probably be feeling a bit of shock, a bit of confusion, be thinking to yourself, boy, I wonder what next Sunday is going to look like. That ought to be interesting. How, who's going to preach next Sunday? What's, what's that going to be like? Uh, maybe you'd start to ask some more serious questions as well, like what's this going to mean for the church? What's this going to mean for our community? Are the community going to hear about this? Are we going to get a bad reputation? Is Jesus going to get a bad reputation because of this? Is this going to stop new people coming to our church? Is this going to really hamstring our efforts to reach people with the gospel? Is, is this a dead end for us as a church? Those might be some of the kinds of questions that you'd be asking. And, of course, it's, it's hypothetical for almost all of us in this room. Uh, there are people in our church for whom that question is really not a hypothetical. They've come from places like Iran or Afghanistan or China where actually opposition to the gospel and the arrest and persecution of pastors particularly is something very real that some of our brothers and sisters here have dealt with. Maybe you heard a little bit about that when Voice of the Martyrs came to visit WBC a few weeks ago. We heard some pretty dramatic stories of the price that some Christians are paying simply for declaring the gospel, that Jesus is Lord all over the world. But I, I want to say that that kind of opposition is not just something that happens overseas. It's not just out there far away. It is increasingly coming a little bit closer to home for us. I'm not trying to be alarmist, but we, we did think about this a little bit last term, didn't we? about how Christians in our society are increasingly being viewed as the bad guys, as the guys who believe the bad and harmful things and are trying to impress them upon others and doing harm with them. Now, I, I want to be clear. We here at WBC 2022, we are nowhere near being arrested simply for coming to church. That is a long, long, long way off in the future, if at all, for us. But I do want to say that these sort of questions of what would we do if there really was concerted opposition to gospel ministry, those kinds of questions are questions that we're going to have to start asking in the not-too-distant future. You just have to ask some of our brothers and sisters in Victoria this year about the kinds of things that they're navigating. Now, as we've started tracking through the book of Acts, up to this point, uh, we have seen things get off to a, a fantastic start. It has been a real thrill ride so far. Jesus has commissioned his church to go and take the gospel and be witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And we have just seen success after success after success, haven't we? The, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and his followers are empowered to proclaim the gospel. Peter stands up at Pentecost and tells everybody they're guilty and they fall to their knees and repent. 3,000 people become Christians. First sermon ever. Uh, the people, the church as they meet, they're starting to enjoy the favour of all of the people in the city. The church are loved for, for who they are. And last week we saw in chapter 3 that Jesus is still at work through his followers. He's performing miracles, signs and wonders. He's healing people. Jesus is powerfully at work. Things are looking good at this point in the book of Acts. 
And so perhaps if you were one of those first followers of Jesus in that first church in Jerusalem, you might be thinking, well, you know what? Yeah, Jesus gave us that mission to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. We should be done in about a month. I mean, things are going really well for us, right? But as we get to our passage today, there's a spanner in the works in a major kind of a way as Peter and John are arrested for simply preaching about Jesus. And all of a sudden, this kind of happy bubble of gospel growth that the church has been living in, it is popped overnight. And so I think the question that Luke, as he wrote this chapter, is trying to help us to wrestle with is the question of, well, is this opposition going to stop the advance of the gospel? Is that it? Is this the end of the story? Now that the institutions of the age are rising up to push back on the gospel, does that mean no more gospel progress? Is Jesus' mission sunk? That's the question that Luke is asking in this chapter. And I think he's going to show us that the answer is a resounding no. Just to be clear, if you remember nothing else, the answer to this question is no. Uh, Actually, I think Luke is going to show us three reasons why the answer is no to this question. And that's what we're going to work through as we have a look into this passage tonight. So will opposition stop the advancement of the gospel? Firstly, no, because Jesus is the only name that saves. Jesus is the only name that saves. So let's have a read of verse 5. It was after Peter and John have been arrested and taken away. The next day, the, uh, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? See, essentially they're asking, who gave you the right? What, what authority are you under? Who's in charge of you? What are you doing this for? I wonder if if you've ever been in that kind of a situation where you are being interrogated on trial for your Christian faith. You ever had one of those moments where you feel like the only Christian guest on a panel on Q&A on the ABC? You know, that kind of experience where it just feels like everybody in the room is against you and, and that you're expected to be the spokesperson for Jesus in that moment? I remember before I went to Bible college, I used to work an office job in Sydney and I was the only Christian in my team. And there were multiple work lunches and dinners that we would go to where the topic would eventually turn to, you know, matters of importance and my faith and those sort of things. And it did feel like every single person had a bone to pick with Christianity and I was going to have to be the one to deal with it. And so the questions were just being fired at me. It was a very uncomfortable kind of an experience. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a similar kind of of a situation, whether it's with your work colleagues or your family members or your friends at uni, I think it does often feel for us like if we just stick our head above the parapet for Jesus, we are going to get shot at. You know that feeling? So just put yourself in Peter's shoes here. Peter is actually on trial in a literal sense. He's standing before the Supreme Court of Justice in the day, the Sanhedrin, and there are a crack team of 70 legal experts who are questioning him. The most important leaders in Jewish religious life, really the most important people in Israel at the time, what would you do in that situation? I know what I would do. The temptation for me would just be to remain silent, keep my head down and just wait until it was all over. Look what Peter does. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. What does Peter do? He goes on the attack. He turns the tables and the accused becomes the accuser very, very quickly. And Peter's got a simple message for them, doesn't he? In verse 10, he says, Jesus is the one who healed this man. You remember Jesus? Yeah, Jesus is the one that you killed. (laughs) Well, God raised him from the dead. You thought he was a nobody, but now actually he is the centerpiece of God's kingdom. That's what this is all about. It's a stunning kind of act of bravery by Peter really here, isn't it? There couldn't be more intimidating circumstances and Peter shows not an inch inch of cowardice. And I think you've, you've got to ask the question when you see Peter be so brave, well, What could possibly make someone that brave? What truth could inspire someone to stand up for Jesus in that kind of a way with absolutely no fear of repercussion? Well, you get your answer in verse 12, don't you? As Peter's sermon, his answer, it kind of builds to this crescendo in verse 12 where he declares that Jesus is the only name that saves I think that Acts chapter 4, verse 12 has got to be one of the most offensive verses of the Bible in our day and age, doesn't it? It is not politically correct in the eyes of the world to say this kind of a thing. In fact, I reckon if you went home and you posted just the words of Acts 4, verse 12 on your Facebook feed or whatever, I think your comment section would be a little bit spicy tonight, can I say? I think you would have your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends going hammer and tong, those who believe the truth of this and those who think that there's practically no more offensive thing that you could say than this. Because if this verse is true, then it means you cannot be saved by being a good person. It means you cannot be saved because your parents follow Jesus. It means no matter how, however well-meaning you are, you cannot be saved by trusting Muhammad. It means that you cannot be saved by attending WBC. It means you cannot be saved through the name of Mary. It means you cannot be saved through the Old Testament sacrificial temple system, which is Peter's point here. That is an offensive thing to say, isn't it? But just, again, do a little thought experiment with me here. I want you to imagine tomorrow morning uh, over breakfast as you're eating your wheat bix you just you have an epiphany, and all of a sudden you've figured out the cure for COVID-19. You don't know how it happened. It just you know plopped there right into your mind. Uh, not a vaccine, mind you, a cure, an actual cure, and you're the only person in the world who's figured this out so far. You. You've got the sole cure for COVID-19. Imagine you posted about that on your Facebook feed. Well, I think that would go viral, excuse the pun. I think you would very quickly get a phone call from the World Health Organization. They'd be wanting to have a chat with you if you were claiming to have a cure, right? Imagine how that chat would go. I'll tell you how that chat would not go. 
The World Health Organization would not sit down with you and say, hey, could you just pipe down about that cure that you've come up with? Yeah, we don't want the other people, the other doctors who are looking for a cure to get too offended by you claiming that you've found the only cure. So if you could just tone it down a bit, that'd be much appreciated. No, they would never do that, would they? That's, that's nonsense. Because when you're talking about the cure for a deadly disease, the question of, is this offensive, that doesn't even factor into it. The question is, is it true? I tell you, it's exactly the same with what the Bible says about the cure for sin. The claim of the Bible is that there is no other cure for sin but that our Saviour died. That's it. According to the Bible, there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Offensive? Maybe. But is it true? I think rather than this verse being a verse which ruffles our feathers, I think this verse ought to be one that just fills us with joy and thankfulness, right? Because don't miss the big point of what Peter is saying here. The big point is that there is a name by which you can be saved. His point is that there, there is a name that is the cure for sin. There is a name which is escape from God's judgment. Just one name, the name of Jesus. It's the only name given by God to mankind by which we must be saved. So can you start to see why the first reason why opposition to the gospel will not stop its advance? Do you see why? It's because God has chosen one and only one name to be humanity's hope. This is God's plan, his idea. And so God is the one who is committed to seeing people saved by this name. And so understand that human opposition to God's chosen means of salvation doesn't stand a chance. Uh, human opposition will not stop the advance of the gospel any more than nailing Jesus to a cross would stop him. God has chosen one narrow gate for salvation and he will see that that gate does not get closed. Isn't that a truth that puts steel in your spine as a Christian? Can I say to you tonight as well, if you are here and you are someone who has not yet been saved by the name of Jesus, can I encourage you to turn to him? You can search for the rest of your life for another way to be saved, but there is none. If that's something you'd like to talk about tonight, I'd be very happy to chat with you after the service. Is opposition going to stop the advance of the gospel? No, because Jesus is the only name which can save. And secondly, no, because ordinary Christians are compelled to speak about Jesus. Ordinary Christians are compelled to speak about Jesus. Let me have a read from verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. 
Uh, one thing we have to understand is that Israel's society back then was a very hierarchical society. Uh, and the authority of your words, particularly on religious matters, it depended on how long you'd been to rabbi school, basically. How long had you been trained in handling God's word? And I think we we also live in a society which is hierarchical in a different kind of a way. If you've spent any length of time working in an office environment, you will know that the higher up the food chain you get, the more authority your words carry. So it was with Israel. But the leaders here, they get a, a real surprise that kind of throws their system out of whack because here are two men who have not been to rabbi school, right? They haven't been trained, Peter and John. And here they are standing up for Jesus in front of the religious establishment and boldly proclaiming the gospel. I mean, who do these men think they are? You see, what Peter and John know and what we ought to know as well is that while theological education can be helpful, it actually doesn't give you any extra authority automatically. That's not how it works. And that ought to be really encouraging for us, I think, when it comes to speaking about Jesus. In whatever uh, domain of life you're speaking about Jesus, whether that's to one another after church here on Sunday, whether that's to a friend as you try to share the gospel with them, Whatever domain you are in where you are speaking about Jesus, do understand that there is no such thing as a Christian who is underqualified to speak about Jesus. And that's because when we speak about Jesus, it's actually not about us and about how much authority we have. It's about Jesus and how much authority he has. How much authority does Jesus have? All authority in heaven and on earth. He is seated at God's right hand. And so you, friend, are qualified to speak about Jesus. Uh, kind of goes without saying, the Sanhedrin are not pleased by this. Have a look what they say from verse 15. Uh, so they ordered them, Peter and John, to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. It's kind of remarkable, isn't it, to be told what the Sanhedrin were thinking and discussing that day. You would think that if they have just seen irrefutable proof of a miracle, they might just maybe stop and think, gosh, maybe God's at work through these Christians. Maybe they're onto something here. Maybe this name of Jesus really is powerful after all. But that never even enters their mind. They are so close-minded here, aren't they? They don't want this to be true because if it's true, they're out of a job. They want to shut this whole Jesus thing down. And so they tell them just, well, put a cork in it. And they assume that their authority is going to be enough to kind of seal the deal, to stop them from speaking in the powerful name of Jesus because they are the highest authority. Nobody dares to defy the Sanhedrin, right? Well, imagine their shock when Peter's reply comes back in verse 19. They reply, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. I mean, that's a catch-22, isn't it? What are, the, what are the Sanhedrin supposed to say to that? Oh, we think you should listen to us instead of God. Well, no, of course, obviously they can't say that, can they? Peter and John, you see, they've got their authority hierarchy spot on. They understand that it is the job of Christians to obey the powers that be so long as they are not asking us to disobey God, in which case we cease to obey 
uh, they understood actually that to not speak publicly about Jesus and their encounter with him was to be disobedient to God. They must speak. That's what's clear. They are compelled to speak. There's no option for them to remain silent. What is it that makes a Christian feel compelled to share about Jesus? Have you ever met a Christian who just will not stop talking about Jesus? How does somebody get like that? How do we get like that, to be people who will speak about Jesus at every opportunity? I think when it comes to evangelism, uh, we tend to often kind of, if you're anything like me, motivate ourselves by thinking about the great need of people out there who do not know Jesus. We reflect on the judgment that they are facing, the eternity without God that they are facing. And we think to ourselves, well, okay, I see the need, so they need Jesus. But realize, as true as all that is, that's not the motivation for Peter and John to speak about Jesus, right? Instead of starting with the need and then working back to Jesus, Peter and John start with Jesus, right? Because they have tasted something of Jesus' glory. They've seen a glimpse of his kingdom. They were there when he did miracles. He was transfigured before their very eyes. They saw his death. They witnessed his resurrection. They know that Jesus is the Christ and the Lord. They know that Jesus is such good news that they actually want to speak about him, no matter who happens to be standing in front of them. And so for those of us who are Christians... I want to say, realize that we too have tasted something of Jesus' glory. I take it that's why you're a Christian, because you've understood how good news Jesus is and you want a relationship with him. If you didn't think Jesus was good news, you wouldn't be a Christian. And so for those of us who want to be more bold in evangelism, then what we've got to see this as is a call to fix our eyes all the more on Jesus to spend more time focusing and reflecting on him, getting to know him, looking at how good he is, realising how eminently worthy of being known and being made known Jesus himself is. That is how Christians become compelled to speak about Jesus. Uh, in the, the book of the term that we're doing this term, uh, Making Faith Magnetic, you may have seen out in the foyer by a guy called Daniel Strange, he makes that exact point. I want to read you a quote from this book. This is what Daniel Strange says. Our evangelism should flow out of our discipleship rather than being an add-on activity. I just want believers to be, well, believers, but in a full, rich way which overflows and permeates every inch of life where their love for Jesus just spills out of them. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of, Luke 6.45. As it's been said, the Christian is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Uh, this book is seriously helpful if you are someone who wants to get better at speaking about Jesus. I've bought this book tonight and I want to give it to one of you. Is there someone who would like to read this book? Very happy to give this to you as a gift, but do realize that I'm a bloodhound and I will chase you down and make sure you've read it. Is anybody keen for a copy of this? Chuck your hands up. Um, don't worry if you missed out. There's still copies available in the foyer. 15 bucks, I'll sell you one afterwards. Um, the point is that opposition cannot stop the spread of the gospel because ordinary Christians, Christians who just know Jesus, we will always be compelled to speak about him. The more we know of him, the more compelled we'll be. That's his second reason 
Third reason why opposition will not stop the spread of the gospel is because God's people will unite to pray. God's people will unite to pray. Uh, Peter and John, when they when they get released from uh, the Sanhedrin, the first thing they do is they go back to their church and they tell everybody what's happened. Uh, and so what, what, what is going to happen as the church hear this news after this arrest? How is the church going to respond? Are they going to lodge a formal complaint with the Sanhedrin, write a strongly worded letter? Are they going to take up arms? Are they going to issue a fatwa against the Sanhedrin? No, none of those things. Instead, what the church do in response is they get down on their knees and they pray. And it just, it kind of looks so weak, doesn't it? Compared to the might of the Sanhedrin, this authoritative body who've just declared that they want to put a stop to all things Christian, they want to squash this new church thing, how do the Christians respond? Well, quietly, in prayer. Looks pretty pathetic, doesn't it? Well, let's take a look at actually what they're praying, how they pray from verse 24. They start in verse 24 by addressing God as sovereign Lord. That is, he is the one who, who reigns above all other powers in the universe. They, they talk about how God is the one who created every atom of the universe. That's the one they're addressing with this prayer, the sovereign Lord. And then in verse 25, they, they go on to quote a section from Psalm 2, you might know it in the Old Testament, uh, because what they're doing is they're recognising that this opposition that they're facing, people pushing back on the gospel, it's exactly the same opposition that God had spoken about back in Psalm 2, in fact, that he'd promised was going to happen. It's now coming to a reality. In other words, as they pray, they're saying, Lord God, you knew this was going to happen. This is not a surprise to you, God. We understand that you know about this. And then in verse 28, they actually even go a step further. In verse 28, they acknowledge that every single piece of opposition that God's people have ever faced, including the death of Jesus, it was all exactly what God's power and will had decided beforehand would happen. All this opposition, it's all part of God's plan. This prayer has, uh, has one big key idea running all the way through it. It's the idea that God is 100% in charge of his world 100% of the time. Uh, he has been for all history. It's what uh, theologians call the doctrine of God's sovereignty, as Sam so eloquently prayed about earlier. And, and when we come to grips with that idea that God is 100% in charge of his world 100% of the time, I'll tell you what, it changes your life in a very big way. Because we think generally that we're in charge of the world, don't we? If not us individually, at least humans you know, in general are in charge of the world. We assume that we shape this place that we're living in. Uh, you know, Organisations, banks and, and governments, multinationals, big institutions, they're the ones who are really kind of setting the agenda in the world. We think human beings are in charge, but actually to acknowledge that God is sovereign is to say, no, that's not true. Uh, no university sets the agenda. No government sets the agenda. No banker sets the agenda. God sets the agenda. God right now is in charge of this world and everything in it. And so that means for you and I, as we live our life and as things are going well for us, we realize that God is the one who is making it go well for us. And we say thank you. And when things are not going well for us, when opposition arises, when it becomes hard to be a Christian, we acknowledge that, yes, God's still in charge of all of that too. 
And, and we may not understand exactly why he's choosing to do things the way that he is, but we say to him, Lord, we trust you. We trust that this is part of your plan to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We don't see how, but we trust you, God, because you're sovereign. And you see, because we have a sovereign God, it means that prayer is not the weak act of people who, who don't have a better course of action available to them. No, actually, it's the most powerful thing that we could possibly do. It's a bit like soldiers, if you imagine, in a, in a war zone who are, who are on the front lines fighting against the enemy and they're pinned down and they're outgunned and they're out of resources on the battlefield. They're facing an enemy that's far more powerful than they are and there's absolutely nothing they could do to turn the tide of this battle. And so what they do is they get on their radio and they call back to base and they call in for air support. And soon in come the planes, dropping massive payloads on the enemy, turning the tide of the battle. That's prayer, calling in heavenly air support, asking God to do what we cannot possibly do because we're not sovereign. Charles Spurgeon... The uh, Baptist pastor from the 19th century, he put it like this. He said, prayer pulls the rope below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell for they pray so languidly. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. <laughs> but he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. That's prayer, calling in heavenly air support from our sovereign Lord who can do all things. There is nothing more powerful that we can do than to pray. And of course we can and we must pray individually, but I want to say to you tonight that there is something uniquely special about us as God's people coming together in unity and praying together as the church did here in Jerusalem. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, again, uh, as he was talking about the prayer meetings of a church, he said that you could judge the condition of a church by the condition of its prayer meeting. Uh, he said that prayer meetings are the throbbing machinery of the church. That's the heart of the church. He even at one point talked about prayer meetings as a graceometer by which you could judge how much God was at work in a church by the health of the prayer meeting. I thought it was a fascinating kind of an insight. I think he's right. And I want to confess to you something that I don't think we as a church have excelled in this area of gathering to pray together. I genuinely think it's been a weakness of WBC for quite a while. And uh, because of that, I want to tell you tonight about a prayer and praise night coming up in a few weeks' time. It's the first one we've done since before COVID, I think. Uh, 31st of August, it's a Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. here at church. I want to ask you, I want to invite you to come along to that prayer and praise night. In fact, I, I want to ask you to please prioritize coming along to that prayer and praise night because there is very little else that you or I could spend our waking hours doing that's as important as praying together and petitioning our sovereign Lord. So won't you come and join us and, and pull the rope of heaven? What is it that the, uh, the church, as they pray, what is it that they actually ask for? They haven't asked for anything yet in the verses that we've looked at. Put yourself again in, in their shoes. Imagine what the church must have been feeling as their leaders returned from a night in jail. I'm sure they were worried. I'm sure they were, were really scared about what the future may have held. Fear, I think, would have been the emotion that most of the church members would have been feeling at that point. 
And it is actually fear which drives their prayer, drives what they ask for in their prayer. What is it that they are fearful of? Is it imprisonment? No, it's not imprisonment. Is it a leadership vacuum, maybe? No. Is it a a tainted reputation in the community? No, it's not that either. Have a look at verse 29. They pray, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They are terrified that this opposition to the gospel might make them less bold in evangelism. They cannot stomach the thought of being cowards for Jesus. And so the only thing they ask for is for boldness from the sovereign Lord. Now this passage is the first time in the book of Acts that we see open hostility and opposition to the gospel. We're going to see a lot more of it as the book goes on. And the question that I've said has been hanging over this whole thing has been, well, is this opposition going to prevent the gospel from advancing to the ends of the earth? Is this the end? And by the end of the chapter, you get a very clear answer. Look at verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God answers this prayer immediately and and realise that by the end of this passage, this opposition has not put a dent into the gospel mission. (laughs) The passage started with them speaking the word of God boldly and it finishes with them speaking the word of God boldly. And I take it that if if all of the leaders of our church were imprisoned tomorrow for some reason, that the good news of Jesus would continue to ring out from this place. You know, all over the world, authorities have discovered that imprisoning church leaders cannot stop the spread of the gospel. In fact, far from stopping the spread of the gospel, uh, look at what the opposition has actually done. Because of the opposition here, the number of believing men has grown to 5,000, from 3,000 to 5,000. It's grown, not shrunk. Because of opposition, the gospel is now being proclaimed in the corridors of power. There's a new audience that are hearing the good news about Jesus, all because of this opposition. Because of this opposition, the whole church has mobilized. The church is now united by their mission, appealing to the sovereign Lord in prayer. Is opposition going to stop the spread of the gospel? No, no, and no. Jesus' name will always be the only name that saves. Ordinary Christians will always be compelled to speak about what Jesus has done. And God's people will always keep on uniting to beg the sovereign Lord to intervene and send in heavenly air support. Why don't we do that now? Sovereign Lord, we thank you that you have placed us in the middle of a story which has a certain end. Thank you that you have made it abundantly clear that this mission that you've called us into, that it will be successful, that the message of Jesus will not ultimately be defeated. Thank you that you have ordained that Jesus will be known all over the world. And so, God, as we face opposition in our lives and increasingly in our nation, would you help us not to be dismayed, not to be discouraged, but to be confident, like 
Peter and John and that first church in Jerusalem were, knowing that you're the one who's committed to making Jesus known. So the efforts of mere humans will not be enough to stop you. Help us to trust that you can work through us as we speak just about what we know of Jesus. And Lord, please, would you move us to our knees to call and plead to you constantly to do what we cannot do. We cannot bring life. Only you can do that, Father. And so please, would you work through us here at WBC to make Jesus known. We ask in his name. Amen. Mm -hmm.